are starting a new series this Sunday. We just finished with 12 weeks of the Ten Commandments. Two preparatory weeks, and then finally going through each of the Ten Commands. And then last Sunday we had a guest speaker. So, so we finished uh, with, with one Old Testament, a huge moment in the Old Testament, that being the Ten Commandments, which really sets a foundation, of course, for everything else that God's going to do. Um, this Sunday, what it is we're starting is a series called Redeeming Ruth. Um, this is going to be a six-week series that will lead us all the way up to Advent, all, right? all the way up to Christmas time. And so, <clears throat> as we approach Ruth, today I want to almost introduce the book of Ruth and its context to you. And so where we'll begin here is in... The book of Ruth, chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 1. Hear these words from Scripture. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of the wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Chilion died, so that the women, or sorry, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had learned in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited. His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in laws, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word of God. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you can help us understand your word and know the Word. So help us to do that today, Lord, by the power of Your Spirit in these next few moments we have together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth. We need to hear what this little book has to say. It is a short story in the Bible. It's wedged between judges on the one side and First and Second Samuel On the other. (laughs) Ruth needs to be redeemed in our time. Redeemed to us. Because it is a story, a beautiful story, of redemption. God's redemption. Uh, It is a short story that is easy to understand. There's no major evil conflicts or warlords that arise. You don't get that. There's no wars that are happening. There's no great heroes that are in the book of Ruth. 
You don't have somebody wielding a sword. The book is of ordinary people. The book is simple. And yet, it's a powerful book and has been for many people one of their favorite books in all of the Bible. (laughs) It's about God's rescue plan. About how He redeemed even us. If you know anything about the book's ending. It's about God's redeeming love. A special word, like I told the kids a little moment ago, is in this book. And that special word is something we're going to talk about over the next six weeks. It's a word that is in the Hebrew that doesn't have an exact translative companion. It has many. Seen as faithfulness, steadfast love, loyal love, unfailing mercy, kindness, as it's represented here at the beginning of Ruth. You see, there's something redemptive about Ruth and we need to hear it. We need to know it. And so we're going to end up reading the whole book over the next six weeks. So you can't really say that over most sermon series, right? Nobody wants to read all of Exodus. <laughs> the fun parts, yeah. You know, the exciting parts, right on, where the mountain's blazing up top and there's thunder and earthquakes and people are dying. Uh, that's, that's fun stuff, but not, not the laws. Here, this is a short story uh, that grabs everyone's attention. It's not just a chick flick. Some could mistake it as such. It's to do with love, romance, sacrifice, honor. It's more than just a chick flick in the Bible. Uh, The man here, Boaz, is a real man's man. He's a man that makes us want to be better men when we see how he reacts uh, in this story. So notice here, as we begin, just just the first words here. In the days... When the judges ruled. What were these days? What were these days like? What's the context of this? A lot of times we we find ourselves, just like in life, we find ourselves in a story, right? The story's already been going on. (laughs) We just plop into this story and we won't outlive the story. There's a greater storyteller here at work. But this slither of Israel's history is absolutely important, but if we don't locate it, within Israel's greater history, then we're just going to be lost. We'll be looking at the tree and be lost in the forest. So what I want to do is back out a little bit and just say, what were the judges' period? What was that like in Israel? Was this a good time for Israel? Was it a bad time for Israel? (laughs) When the judges ruled, what were judges? Judges were these local heroes that were militaristic. It's not really the kind of hero that you typically are going to think of that just you know, comes and saves the day in a nice way, they don't save the day in a nice way. They end up, the judges kill a lot of people. There's a lot of death in judges. This period is right on the heels of Joshua. You remember all of the Pentateuch has to do with the people of God, at least starting from 12 of Genesis, from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now we get Moses, this great towering figure. And then you get Joshua, which is his right-hand man. And he subsequently takes over in Israel as a ruler. He's a general. And he leads them into the promised land and God gives them great victory in Joshua. Great victory. I mean, the whole book of Joshua essentially is about victory. 
God is giving them the land. They're not just taking the land. You may want to reread Joshua. <laughs> it's interesting. They have a lot of men ready to fight, and God says, That's too many. What? Too many men to fight? I want you to whittle that number down, Joshua. It's too many. If you do it with that many, you won't know I did it. You'll think you did it. I want that number whittled down. Not only that, before they entered the land, God says, I want you to prepare your men. And Joshua's thinking, right on. I got this. You know, Dev Grew, which is where the Navy SEALs, they train. Uh, That's the elite of the Navy SEALs. That's for SEAL Team 6, Dev Grew. I I know this because I read the book, okay? Not because I'm part of that, all right? I may, play, I may play Call of Duty too, which has it in there apparently in the new ghost one. But nonetheless, he says, all right, we've got this training and we'll send them through that training. They'll be the most elite fighters on the planet. We, we got the... guy says, no. <laughs> it's not the kind of training I'm, I'm looking for here. I'm ready for you to cut back a little bit. And how I want you to do that is I want you to circumcise all the men. Joshua's thinking, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when, is, when are we scheduled to invade? Because that's not going to be a good thing for our guys. You realize that's not going to actually prepare us. You you understand? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Remember, he sees that general who comes and he says, I'm I'm sorry, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And the guy says, neither. And he bows down and worships him because he's the angel of the Lord. (laughs) So here's Joshua. Joshua leads them into great victory. And, and, and Joshua, you're just, you're just saying, right on, they finally got the land. I mean, the land was promised in Genesis 12, and we wait through Exodus. We wait through Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and finally, they get the land. They're in the land. And once they get in the land, they get settled, and they get too settled. Doesn't God warn them in Deuteronomy? He says... Don't forget me. Deuteronomy's a farewell message from a 120-year-old leader named Moses. This is it for him. He knows he's about to go on, and he can't go into the promised land because of his disobedience. And how he speaks to them the words of Deuteronomy, and those words are very clear. They are, if you obey, blessing. If you disobey, cursing. Obey leads to life. Disobey leads to death. There's no shady ground there in Deuteronomy. Either obey God or not. Choose life or choose death. Don't forget me is the constant refrain in Deuteronomy. Now why would God warn us? if we couldn't forget Him? Why would God warn them if they couldn't turn away from Him? No, He warns them because He knows that the bridge is out when you lay up. He knows that the bridge is out and there's disaster imminent when you sit back and relax. What God tells them is, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, or as I like to say, steak and potatoes. I'm going to give you LCD screens that you didn't buy. I'm going to give you a nice house that you didn't build. This is what he tells them in Deuteronomy. He says, but when you get into the land, don't lay back in your recliner. This is the Gospel according to Marshall. Don't lay back in your recliner and think, 
Look at what I've done. Look at what I did. This is great. No, instead, don't forget me. Remember me. Sound familiar? Jesus on his last night with his disciples. Why would he why would he challenge them with those words? He could have said, take faith, see you later, peace out. Instead, he says, do this to remember me. There's great danger in forgetting God. Sounds like it's impossible, doesn't it? I mean, he's after all, he's God. His handiwork is all around us, and yet, just like little kids, we forget, don't we? My kids forget what all I can do all the time. How I can help them. And they try to do it themselves and end up spilling grape juice all over the wall. All they had to do was ask. We make messes all over our lives because we forget who our Father is and what He's capable of doing. And how much He cares for us. He even cares about the little things. (laughs) And so they get into the land and they forget God in Judges. And Judges shows you this very dark picture of Israel's history. Maybe the darkest picture in Israel's history. Things are happening in in Judges that are quite frankly R-rated. For Sunday morning. They continually go after other gods. They continually try to be like their neighbors. Remember they were told to drive their neighbors out? Drive the people, all the ites, Perizzites and Amorites and Moabites and Mosquito Bites. They were told to drive them all out or else they would infect them with the same disease that was in the land, that God was purifying the land, placing them in as judging agents. And now they turned sour just like the people who were before them. And so God sends these judges once they cry out. There's a cycle in the judges where they sin, God sends a raiding group into their midst, They put them into submission and they cry out, God help us, we got ourselves in a mess. And God sends a a hero, a judge. That's what a judge is. A judge wasn't one who all rise, you know, with with the code and everything. No, 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 no. (laughs) He was wielding a sword. He was a militaristic kind of dude or lady. Remember Deborah? So the judges are sent to be small rescuers, local rescuers that come into the mix in order to bring the people out of this submission. And so once they bring them out of submission, you can read it over and over in the Judges. This cycle happens. The land, it says, rested. And once they rested again, they did what? They went after other gods. They disobeyed God. They forgot God. And they get in the same mess. And then they cry out again. And then God sends a judge. And then the land rests. And then they do it again. And it's cyclical. It's nauseating in judges. You're turning your stomach and saying, what kind of nincompoots are these? Buffoons. 
until you stop to pause and look at your own life. Until you stop to pause to look at my life. And you say, what an idiot. He has it all. And yet, why would you go there? Why would you do that? Why would you say that? Why would you think that? The judges finally comes crumbling down at the end of the book. Four times in the last few chapters, there's one constant refrain. And that is, there was no king in Israel. Therefore, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Four times. From chapter 17 to 21, this is said. And finally, the end of the book is devastating. A man goes and picks up a concubine. This concubine is subsequently... The the men want to have relations with the man who comes to visit with the concubine. The guy of the house does not let them do that. Instead, they kick out the concubine. They end up raping her until she dies, a group of men. Then they cut her up into twelve pieces and send her out to the twelve tribes of Israel and call war on a tribe of Israel, the Benjamites. And so Israel wars against them and almost eradicates an entire tribe from the face of the earth. And then they forbid them to marry, which is a whole other issue. And you're thinking, civil war? Unthinkable things happening. Where are we again? Are we in some pagan town? No. This is the people of God. This is a very dark time in Israel's history. And that's how the book ends. The book ends with this very blunt statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And you see what you're getting. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we get Ruth. She pops in here. And the book is refreshing. It's delightful. No one reads Ruth and says, what a terrible book. No, it's a great book. It's great literature. I mean, just from an English standpoint of studying literature. (laughs) The book is a contrast to judges. And yet, notice this, it happens during the time of the judges. That's significant. In the days when the judges ruled, these events occurred. That's where the book begins. You've got to know that dark contrast in order to see the flame of light that Ruth offers. I like to think of it as this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Notice it's not this big torch of mine. I'm going to let it... No. no, no. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Ruth is shining in a very dark place. You ever been there before? In a very dark room... I mean one that no natural light from the sun or moon is coming into that room. It's closed off. The smallest light 
illuminates the whole room. It's crazy. You ever notice that you can't see the stars when the sun is shining? You realize they're still there, right? They're there, but when things are going great and there's lots of light, you're not going to see the stars emerge. Here, God has a star in mind in Ruth. And she's shining at a very dark time in Israel's history. And she shines brightly, let me tell you. She's a little star, four chapters. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But look at the impact for my soul, for the church's sake, for God's sake of Israel. Without Ruth, you don't get David. Without David, you don't get Jesus. This light is pointing to a larger light that is a flamethrower that burns throughout all eternity that every other light gets its source from who is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Do we not live in a dark time? Can you not turn on the TV and notice things are getting dark? We can complain, which I've noticed doesn't do anything. We can moan about it, cry about it, lament it. But what does the Bible want us to do through Ruth? Is to say, just uncover it, stop all that, just shine your little light. Don't worry about what the world is doing. Did you not just sing, this is not my home? Let your little light shine. And let me tell you something, it's a great opportunity to do something extraordinary by being ordinary. (laughs) You see, things are dark. We're not in a revival period in the world's history. Not here in America. They may be over in Africa and China. Not here. Things have gotten dark here in America. We may used to have been a light to the nations. We are no longer that light. But we can lament. But we can cry. But we can... But rather, let your little light shine. And let me tell you, in the midst of darkness, that little light is going to illuminate much. Ruth doesn't do any miracles like Elijah. It's not a pow kind of book. There's no real action here. And yet it's a lovely story. There's no great heroes that arise. There's no superpowers. No Avengers. No. Just people being faithful to God. Letting their little light shine in their one little area of the world. And God does something amazing through them. Namely, He comes through their family. (laughs) It's absolutely significant. Do you see what I'm saying here? We have an opportunity. We can complain all day long. It's going to be useless. Let your light shine. And in darkness, it's really going to shine. 
Don't become like your neighbors. Don't become negative. Don't lose hope. Don't forget. These are ordinary folks. And when I look around, hey, that looks like the name of the game. I don't have any superhero powers. Sometimes wish I did. With the church plant, I've gotten depressed and wish I had superhero powers to be able to fly and do stuff and control people. No, that's not the way things work. Faithfulness. Think back on the people in your own life who have made the most impact. It's not the fly-by-nights, is it? No, no, no. I mean, (laughs) my claim to fame in life is that I met Drew Brees. I shook his hand. He held my football. He signed my football. I have a picture on my phone with me and him that I try to show everybody that's interested. Which is not everybody. But you know what? This morning when I heard just a few words from a very short man named Bo, it meant more to me than living with Drew Brees. Why? It's the little things. It's the little things. Isn't it? Absolutely. The fly-by-nights, the big explosions, those go away. But who remains? Who's faithful in your life? When that little guy comes up and grabs my leg and says, Daddy, I love you with all my heart, what does that mean? That's more than the riches, more than pleasure, more than fame. What is that worth? What is faithfulness worth? What is kindness to someone worth? One kind word. One loving touch. This is what God's doing in Ruth. Things are bad. They can't get any worse. They can't get any darker. And yet, there is a remnant of people, ordinary folks, who are still faithful to God. May that be said of us. You don't have to do something superhero-ish. You have to save the world. Just be faithful. That alone will change the entire course of history. (laughs) Because God is in the business of taking the ordinary and making it extraordinary. And when things are dark, like they are now, I'm telling you, this is an opportunity to let your little light shine before people so that all may come to Christ. He says there was a famine in the land. Not only was this during the period of the judges, but there was famine in the land. Now, where they're from is Bethlehem, which means house of bread. (laughs) They're from a place that means house of bread, and yet there's a famine to where they have to go 50 miles over to Moab, a pagan town. So they leave Panera bread because they're starving to death. And they go to a pagan place where they try to find food. 
and great disaster hits this family, there's a famine. You ever been there? You ever felt like you're running on empty? You feel like the world around you has nothing to offer, like you're living in a desert? The people of Israel were there, weren't they? Didn't Jesus enter the wilderness and this is where He was tempted? But then guess what happens? Always in the Bible, this is beautiful if you can see it. When there's a famine, when, he, when God moves them into the wilderness, He's always got something planned on the other side. You ever notice that? <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien, following the Bible, naturally, also follows this same kind of pattern. You think, Ma, Lanta, what in the world has happened? That's my new saying, by the way. This is just my land. Yeah, whatever. You say, what has happened? They're, they're going to be they're going to be lost. The orcs have them, and they carried Frodo away, and there's no hope. And yet, there's great hope. And now, after the fact, you're saying, "Oh man, I'm glad they took them because in that moment something happened and something shifted." Yes, God can see further than we can. He's a little taller than we are. Whereas my boys look out at something they can't see beyond a certain range, I can. And I look up and say, I know you can, Father. He can see far. He knows that when we're on the table getting stitches in our eyes and I'm having to hold my son down and he's screaming at me and I can't reason with him, son, we're trying to fix your eye. He doesn't care in that moment. He's just wiggling. He's just crying. He doesn't understand. In those moments, you may not be able to understand God may not offer answers. But trust Him. He's a good Father. And just like me in that moment, it's breaking my heart into pieces to have to hold my son down as he gets a shot in his eye. Above his eye. And he gets stitches. But you know what? Now he's fixed up. Now he's healed. If the surgeon was too compassionate, my brother being a surgeon, he would say, Oh, your leg is so jacked up, man. Ah, I really don't want to hurt you. I'm not going to do anything about that. Just go home and try to make it the best you can. No. Instead, my brother is able to, <laughs> in his own way, break that leg, cut that leg, drill the leg, hammer the leg. And it's painful. Trust me. He doesn't know, but all those people do. God is the great surgeon, isn't He? The great physician. Some of us He needs to hammer. Maybe more than some. There needs to be some surgical work done. And yes, God is compassionate, but compassion does not get in the way of faithfulness. Compassion does not get in the way of sanctification. He knows that the impurities that are in our body, the things that need to be cleaned out, must be cleaned out. Or the infection will come and death will follow. In those moments, be obedient. That's all Ruth does. They're just obedient. It's nothing fancy. They didn't go to seminary to learn this. They don't have a degree in faithfulness. They're just doing ordinary things and they become extraordinary because the times are dark. 
there's a famine in the land, and <laughs> and they move, and they go to a different place, and God uses that move just like He did with Abraham. Remember, just like He does with Joseph. Remember, everything's gone bad, but now everything is made right by Joseph. What a beautiful story. So too, Ruth. So too, Naomi. So, the judges ruled, and there was a famine in the land, and they moved to a place called Moab. A foreign land. A place that was not God's place of choosing... Do you ever feel like you're in a foreign land? Do you ever feel like things just aren't right? You're in a strange place in your life? Some of you are there now. Let me tell you, Ruth is your book. Ruth is your book. I want you to read this book every single week before we have church. You can do it in in one sitting very quickly. It's a short story. Ruth is your book. You feel like you just don't fit in? Neither did Naomi. Did she? No. Even when she returned home, but who is that? Who she got with her? You see, we are a little pebble. And the world out here is this placid lake that doesn't have the Word of God, doesn't know Jesus Christ. And when God is able to drop us in somewhere... Just like that little bitty pebble, the ripples of that little bitty rock will stretch the entire length of the pond off of one little thing, one little light that can shine. That's what Ruth is calling us to. You don't have to be some superhero, some macho Christian. No, just be faithful. Just be obedient. Just don't forget God. Put your faith in the Lord and Savior who is the bread that came down from heaven. Who says that He will give us water in the desert. Who always can see further than what we can see. You see, in this life, it doesn't seem sometimes like what we're doing makes any difference in the world, does it? Trust me, sometimes I'm wondering, I don't know what changing diapers does to change the world, but, you know, there's plenty of diapers around our place, so I must be a world changer. You know what I'm saying? My goodness, there's a lot of diapers. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, has a beautiful image that I want to end with this morning. He talks of this guy who's, you know, on this bus ride from hell to heaven. And he looks out into the forest ahead and he thinks what he sees is, 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 a, is the sun sparkling down on a river that's coming through the woods. But then he gets to noticing that it's this whole caravan of people who are singing and there's, there's hundreds of them and then there's this lady that is riding on a great stallion that's coming forward with great light and brilliance surrounding her. And, and so the, the, the guy from his perspective, he says, Is it? Is it? And he's talking about Jesus. You know, he's wondering, is this, is this Him? I whispered to my guide, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. (laughs) 
Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of great importance. Hey, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her. And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have been... Must have had a really large family, sir. <laughs> well, every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to the back door, every girl that met her was her daughter. Well, isn't that a, isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children. But her motherhood was different. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And he goes on to talk about, well, what about the animals and all the... Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said. It is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength, but already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint, such as yonder lady, to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. (laughs) You may not get recognition in this life for being a Christian, for sacrificing and serving other people. But there's one who takes notice. And He's the one who matters most. And He's the one who says, I will be bringing my reward with me. Are you working for that King? Is He your King when there is no King in Israel? Is He your bread when there's great famine in the land? Are you light to those around you? The good news is... You can be through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.